Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Let's see, where shall we begin this morning? I'd like to go back and do a little house cleaning, talk a little theology, talk again about how the Bible works, how the Bible functions, and then eventually we'll make our way back to Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 19 this morning, but we'll get there eventually. We're going to look at some other things first. Two weeks ago, at the end of the service, Micah came up and he asked me a question and he said, it's probably just me, but I want to ask this question. And I said to him, Micah, it's never just you. If you have a question, the likelihood that somebody else has that same question is very, very high. His question was, when we were teaching at the, uh, let's see, we're in the middle of chapter 18 And we were talking about the parable that Jesus taught concerning the servant who owed a great debt to his master. His master forgave him the debt. And then that same servant went and found another servant who owed him a very minor debt. Let's see. He was unwilling. Verse 30. He was unwilling to forgive him, but he went and threw him into the prison until he should pay back what was owed. His fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved. They came. They reported it to their Lord. He summoned that slave and said, Wicked slave, I forgave you all this debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And I made the comment that I believe that is applicable to all of us. It is a good principle. You have been forgiven, so now forgive. But then I said that verses 34 and 35 are a little more difficult to fit into a new covenant context because verses 34 and 35 say, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart. And I said, now that's very different than the new covenant teaching, which is Jesus died and forgave you, therefore forgive. And so Micah's question, and it was a very good question, is how then when we are reading the Gospels, do we differentiate between the passages that are applicable to the church now and those passages being said by Jesus to an audience that is still under the law, and therefore those statements don't directly apply to us. Isn't that a good question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, everybody in the room thought that, at least once they heard it. So you're among friends. So I said to him, well, I think we have to deal in principles. There are principles of interpretation that we have to look at, that we have to understand, that we have to deal with. We do always have to understand the Old Covenant, New Covenant distinctions so that we don't confuse the two. 
But in the new covenant, there is a general principle that I think is stated most clearly in 2 Timothy 3.16. Somebody look that up. 2 Timothy 3.16. That will say something along the lines of that every word of scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But let's talk about what it's profitable for. You got it? You want to read it? All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay, now hold on to that list for a moment, because what we just heard is that all scripture, now when Paul was saying that, all scripture, what he was referring to, was all the books that we classically call the Old Testament. To the Jews, it's just the scripture. To us, it's the Old Testament. And so Paul was saying that all of the Old Testament is, first off, God-breathed. It's one of those great compound words that Paul is so fond of creating, theonoustos. So you've got the word theos right in there, or theon. And the word pneuma or noustos is spiritual or breath-breathing. Pneuma is the word for spirit. Hagion pneuma, Holy Spirit. And so we get the concept of God-breathed. The idea being that every word that you find in Scripture comes directly from God, is inspired by God, and that God breathed it out through the pen of his prophets who wrote all the Scripture that we find in what we call the Old Testament. So, So then he says that it is profitable, and it's profitable for particular things. It's profitable for rebuke, and it's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training, teaching, and righteousness. It's profitable for doctrine. And so there are all these many facets of the Old Testament scripture that Paul says in the New Covenant, it's still profitable. It's still valuable. Why? Well, because it's breathed by God. And since it's God-breathed words, it's still good for us as the church to read it, to learn it, to study it, and to utilize it in a proper way in order to get our doctrine straight and in order to use it for correction, for rebuke, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Okay, so there's the big principle. Now, on Wednesday nights, as we've been working our way through the Old Testament, we have oftentimes read about Israel's history, particular events that occurred within Israel, national Israel. And I have said over and over again, you regular Wednesday night folk will be overly familiar with this phrase, that we have to distinguish what it's about and what it's for. Who is this passage about? Well, it's about Israel. But who is it for? Well, initially, it was for Israel, which is why Israel would keep these books and keep this teaching and keep this history. It's why they kept and bound and carried and copied the scripture, because it was for Israel. But as we get into the New Covenant, you have Paul there writing to Timothy, telling Timothy to teach, to train in the things of Christ, and also saying that the Old Testament, the scripture, is also profitable. And profitable in many different ways for many different purposes. All of the Old Covenant teaching is for Israel. 
and it is about Israel. Then you get into the new covenant and you look back at that stuff and is it about the church? Well, no. But is it for the church? The answer is yes. So there's the big principle. The principle is you look at everything that God has said, everything that God has written, and you draw from it the important instruction that leads to proper understanding of the kind of God you're dealing with so that all scripture, every word of it is profitable for the doctrine, for the rebuke, for the reproof, for the instruction in righteousness. But then in understanding that principle, you have to understand the distinctions, the differences. For instance, we just read that Jesus said uh, at the end of the parable here, his Lord would be moved with anger, hand him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother in his heart. So what Jesus said was two people under the law, you have to forgive. And if you don't forgive, your father won't forgive you. Okay, now is that a New Testament, new covenant principle? Well, no. Somebody look up Ephesians 4.32. Somebody else look up Colossians 3.13. Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13. Who's got Ephesians 4.32? I do. Read it out loud for us, please. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, the instruction about forgiveness just changed. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. The Lord's Prayer includes the phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And in fact, back there in Matthew 5, after Jesus has given that prayer, He says in chapter 5, verse 14 of Matthew, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Okay, so there's the principle, but that's an old covenant legal principle. Under the law, it was all performance-based. It was all based on what you do. And so the principle under the old covenant was... God will not forgive you if you don't also forgive. But then what we just read out of Ephesians 4 is do forgive because you've been forgiven. And that's the opposite of the law. And this is perfectly in keeping with what we've been seeing time and time again out of Jesus' own lips. We're going to see it again today. The new covenant in Christ, the new covenant in his blood is not a recapitulation of the law. It's not a retelling or a reformation of the law. It's not a rubber stamp of the law with a couple additions added to it. It is completely different. It's completely distinct. It's completely unique. According to the writer of Hebrews, it's higher, it's better. It's based on better principles and a better blood and a better covenant across the board. And it's not the same. And that's why people get confused so frequently because they don't understand the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant And then they don't know what to do when they bump into Jesus saying, 
God won't forgive you if you don't forgive. And then they read Paul and Paul says, forgive because you've been forgiven. Colossians 3.13, somebody has that? It says essentially the same thing. George, you want to read it? If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, all must, so you also must forgive. So if you have a complaint against another, you have to forgive. Why? Because the Lord forgave you. That's very different than if you don't forgive your brother, the Lord won't forgive you. The entire inspiration for forgiveness has been turned upside down. Instead of, I'm going to forgive you because I want God to forgive me, it's, I'm going to forgive you because God has forgiven me. Okay, so what are we going to do about this? So we were reading through uh, the parable in Matthew 19, and everything up to verse 33 held to that principle of You need to forgive. You ought to forgive. You've been forgiven. After all, the slave in this story had been forgiven by his master. So then he should forgive. Up until there, we could say, well, the new covenant principle is forgive because you've been forgiven. And that fits the story thus far. But when you get to verse 34 and verse 35, that's when Jesus lowers the boom. And what he says is perfectly in keeping with the Mosaic law. It's perfectly in keeping with the old covenant. And the people he was talking to were under the old covenant. And therefore, it was perfectly applicable to them. Okay, so now let's go back to our initial question. Who is that about? Okay, it's about the Jews that are under the law. It's about the people Jesus was talking to, right? Right. Who's it for? It's for us. It's for our instruction. It's for our doctrine, our reproof and our rebuke, our instruction in righteousness. It's for us. It's not about us. See the difference? Okay, now, as if that weren't complicated enough, I'm going to see if I can complicate it some more. And trust me, I can. I used to be part of a group that wrote New Covenant articles. Back in those days, it was called New Covenant Theology. New Covenant Theology still exists out there. I'm not part of the New Covenant Theology group or movement for various reasons that we've talked about through the years. But back in those days, we discussed these kinds of things, and it was helpful. It helped me to understand and develop my own Bible comprehension. And so there was one person in the group who said, well, it works like this. The Old Covenant has a bunch of rules and laws, 613 to be exact. We know that not all of those carry over into the New Covenant because we don't have priests and we're not killing animals and we're not, okay, there's a bunch of them then that don't carry over into the New Covenant, clearly. But some of them appear to it's still not okay to murder we're still told by Paul don't be drunk with wine we're still told don't commit adultery homosexuality in the old covenant wrong new covenant wrong so there are some things that just don't change that seem to carry over and so there was one fellow who postulated well then it works like this If it's repeated in the new covenant, then it's still binding on the conscience of a Christian. If it's not repeated, things like priests and temple and sacrifice, if it's not repeated in the new covenant, then it's not binding 
on the heart and mind of a Christian. Which led someone to wisely say, well, you know, bestiality is not repeated in the new covenant. Does that make it okay? No, No, of course not. We all know it's not okay. (laughs) But now how do we know it's not okay? I mean, aside from the factor, how how do we know that's not okay? Because there are principles at work. You have to understand the principles. What do we learn by looking at the Old Testament, Old Covenant law? It wasn't for us. We're not under the law because we're the new covenant church and because we're Gentiles. So we were never under that covenant to begin with. We weren't at Mount Sinai and we weren't part of the people group that that covenant was formed with because we're not Israelites. So, okay, we go read the law, which we've done here in detail, verse by verse. What do we learn from it? We learn how holy God is. With each little minute detail, we find out how high God's standards are. And we learn what kind of God we're dealing with. And the kind of God we're dealing with is a high and a holy and a righteous God. Okay, there's the principle. Now, does that principle change in the new covenant? No. In fact, the standard gets higher. And so the command, be holy because I am holy, still exists. Okay, so that overriding principle becomes a guide and a governor on our behavior so that when we confront something like bestiality, we say, okay, it's not repeated in the new covenant, but we know it's wrong. How do we know it's wrong? Because we know God is holy. How do we know that? Because we read his law. You see? So even though the Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff isn't about us, it's obviously for us. And then if you get the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant straight, and you know those differences and you understand those differences and those distinctions, then when you come across a passage in a book like Matthew, you're able to say this directly applies to the Israelites who are under the law. But we can learn from it. And that's what I was trying to do two weeks ago in applying this parable to the church and saying the principle that this parable is spelling out is applicable to the church. But these final two statements are not because we're under the new covenant. So how do we differentiate? How do we distinguish? You start with the big overarching principles. First principle, every word is breathed by God and profitable. You can learn from all of it. Second principle, who is this for and who is this about? The Old Testament's about Israel, but it's for our learning, for our training. Third principle, Old Covenant, New Covenant, learn the difference. And by the way, in that discussion that I referenced a few minutes ago, where people were saying, well, you know, there are some rules that were in the Old Covenant that are carried over into the New Covenant, I argued, no, there are no rules of the Old Covenant that are, quote, carried over into the New Covenant. The New Covenant continues to be unique and distinct, 
and contains certain rules in and of itself that are the same rules that were back here. But as soon as you use the language of carried over, you're creating a bridge between the two. And there is no bridge between the old and the new covenant. There is much of the new covenant that sounds like the old covenant. There are rules that are identically the same, but don't ever create connections, threads, bridges between the old and the new covenant, or you'll start mixing and matching, and next thing you know, you're back in legalism, which is where we all go naturally anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good? Okay, good. Because when it comes to doing theology, I know most folks have jobs and you have lives and everything else. You don't have the time to sit down and just do theology. But this is the world that I live in and and converse in. And when you're doing theology, you have to make those kind of very specific, very nitpicky kind of distinctions or else it all gets gummed up. It all gets muddy. And I like clarity. Got it? Okay, you had your hand up. This is very important because this is at the heart of what we're really dealing with. When we present our information, we're looking at it from a certain vantage point, and everyone else has got these glasses on, and they can't make sense out of what we're saying. How many churches understand Israel to begin with? And if you don't understand Israel, you can't possibly even understand this. You have to understand this. Because if you don't, it's so easy for people to say, well, what are you guys teaching? God just elects and doesn't matter how you act. And, we and what did you read this morning out of Colossians? Titus. Titus, too. I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> and what did you read this morning out of Titus? I was here. I heard it. God's grace has appeared. And because of that, it puts an ethical imperative on you. Not a carryover. To me, this uh, really clarifies, it makes it really simple. But this is what we're, we're dealing with. The belief system of people, they're trying to make sense out of what they've been browbeat with for 40 years in church. And it just, you can't make it work. Right. right. You can spend your whole life in church listening to sermons that are just cherry-picked verses from here and there all over the Bible. And you'll never learn how the Bible works as a unit. And it does work as a unit. It functions as a unit. And what I wanted to emphasize from the Titus 2 passage that you providentially read this morning is that Paul does say the grace of God has appeared, but it doesn't stop there. The grace of God has appeared. Now act like it. So the grace of God becomes the inspiration for behavior. That is the opposite of what the law says. The law says, here are the standards. Do it and live. Don't do it and die. And you will be judged accordingly. And the new covenant says, the grace of God has now appeared. So do I live any way I want? No, now you're called to live righteously. And you're more likely to live righteously because you have the spirit of God inhabiting you. Acting as a governor on your behavior, which the folk under the old covenant simply never had. All they had was external rules and external standards that they had to live up to and be judged by. We have not only the grace of God, but we have the inspiration of God through his scripture, through his word, and through his spirit. So our behavior ought to be better, higher, superior to those that were under the old covenant. 
even though we don't have 613 individual rules bearing down on our shoulders. Because the principle is, God is holy, now go be holy. And by the way, Jesus did this very same thing, I will point out, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And I think the Pharisees, when they asked him that, were expecting one of the ten. Which of the ten is the big one? Is it keep the Sabbath? Is it? And he didn't even go to the ten. He went to a completely different passage. And he said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's, that's the first and the highest commandment, and the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And he went somewhere else completely. Paul picks that up and says, in this are all the other commandments. You can find all the other commandments in love God, love your neighbor. Okay, that's a principle. If you follow the principle, love God, love your neighbor, then you don't need 613 rules. Because they're all subsumed under the two big headings, love God, love your neighbor. You get that? So the new covenant really is about big overarching principles of behavior. They're not into the details and the minutia of watching every little thing you do, you know, and going, oh, oh, that that was it, Christian. Oh, chewing gum in church. That's the one, you know. (laughs) The law was like that. It was minute things. Don't move a boundary stone. If you build a house, make sure you put a railing on it so that if someone's working on your roof and they fall on your roof, they don't fall to their death. Little details, little how to clean mold out of your house, how to, you know, these kind of things. The New Covenant doesn't include that stuff. It includes principles. It includes big ideas about God and you and your relationship to him. And then all the other details fall under those big headings that start with love God, love your neighbor. You got that? Am I making sense up here? Yes. Yes. Okay, as long as I'm not alone up here. Did that answer your question? Okay. Do you feel like you kind of have a a better handle on it? You can work with that? I I will point out that that group that I was part of, we discussed and argued about this over the course of years as they were trying to develop what they are now calling New Covenant Theology. This is a a fine point of theology that you can argue about and discuss for the rest of your life. But as we go through the Bible and read through the Bible, we will continue to apply these principles, and they will help us in understanding and reading the Word of God. Make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, good. To two people, it made sense. All right, we are in chapter 19. We're starting in verse 16. This is the story, not a parable. This is an actual historical account that you find in all three of the synoptic gospels. Classically, this is known as the story of the rich young ruler, even though he's never called the rich young ruler. If, if you have a Bible that has topic headings, Oftentimes, the topic heading at this point will say, the rich young ruler. But nowhere in any of Matthew, Mark, or Luke's accounts is he called the rich young ruler. We do know that he's rich. That's part of the story. We find out from one of the accounts that he's a young man. And we find out from another of the accounts that he's a ruler. Put it all together, he's a rich young ruler. Now, this story, like I said, is in all three of the synoptics. That means that it was kind of a standout moment. 
This is one of the things that all three, writing to three different audiences, felt was important because it does talk about a very important topic. According to most people, according to most commentaries, the important topic here is how difficult it is for rich people to get into heaven. That's not the point. That is not the point of this story. The point of this story is Jesus yet again doing what he's been doing all the way through the book of Matthew, which is prioritizing himself. That's the point of this story. The point of this story is, are you clinging to anything in this life that you would refuse to give up for the sake of Christ? That's the point of the story. In this fellow's case, it happens to be his money that he won't give up. And yes, this is a good juncture to talk a little bit about money, the love of money, how difficult it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Jesus does say those things, and it is part and parcel of the story, but it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it's Jesus, completely Jesus, all Jesus, or nothing. So Jesus is doing again what he's continued doing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he continually said, you've heard Moses Now hear me. You've heard Moses say. Now I say. He kept prioritizing himself over the old covenant rules. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, either side of them, the law and the prophets, they're gone. He's standing there alone. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Prioritize him over the law and the prophets. Now Jesus is going to say to this young man, Have you kept the commandments? And he's going to say, every one of them. (laughs) Straight down the line, me. And Jesus prioritizes himself over the Ten Commandments. And that's the point of the story. Got it? Good. Let's start at verse 16, chapter 19, book of Matthew. We'll read it from Matthew's account, and then we'll go look at Luke and Mark's accounts briefly because they do add some important detail. Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, okay, now right away we get into slight variances in topic here. Right away in verse 16, it is rendered, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus responds, Why are you asking me about what is good? Now, in Mark's account and Luke's account, it says, why do you call me good? And so it's a slight variation in the Greek and in the way that it's rendered then in Matthew versus Mark and Luke. The idea is the same, but the language of Jesus' response is slightly different. What has happened is that the young man sees Jesus and says to him, Rabbi, teacher, And says, what good thing do I have to do to gain eternal life? As you'll see, some of the other renderings are good teacher. Jesus' response then is, why do you call me good or why are you asking me about what is good? Jesus' next phrase is the same in every rendering of it. There's only one who is good. So Jesus' response to the man is, why are you coming to me to ask about what good is, or why are you calling me good? Why are you referring to me as good, considering 
only God is good. Now, among the Bible critics, among the critics of Christianity, and particularly among Islamic debaters debating against Christianity, they run right to that passage and say, look, there's Jesus admitting he's not good. And if he's not good, then he can't be God, so you Christians are wrong. Clearly, he can't be God, he said so. And they say it in that tone of voice, with a slightly Arabic accent. What is actually happening in this conversation is that Jesus is not allowing this young man the limited notion that he can be good without being God. Admit that I'm God. You come to me and you admit I'm good. You say I'm good, you call me good. You recognize that I'm good. Okay, no one's good but God. Go the rest of the way. Admit that I'm God. That's the conversation. Jesus is not saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. He said, why do you call me good? Only God's good. Go the rest of the way. He said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but... If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Why did Jesus say that to him? Because that's his world. Because that's his world. He's under the law. Old covenant. He has just said, teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? That's his question. If it comes down to doing, what do I have to do? It's very much like the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. What good works do we have to perform? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. You believe in him that God sent. Well, that's the one thing they can't do. They can't have faith in him because faith is a gift from God, and they haven't been given that gift. And so Jesus says, here's the one thing God requires of you. You want so badly to do something because you're in the religion of doing You're under the law of Moses, which is all about do things, do things. So naturally, they would come to Jesus as a Jewish rabbi and say, well, then what do I have to do? And the same way that he said to the Pharisees, this is what you have to do. Believe in me. He's going to say the same basic thing to this young man. He's going to prioritize himself over all the doing. But he wants something to do. What can I do in order to obtain eternal life? Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Isn't that human? Yeah, I'm keeping the commandments. All of them? No, you know, I got them. Kind of, most. I'm covered. The big ones. I got the big ones. I got the big ones covered. Now, let's be fair. I just made a joke there and played around. But he may also be saying, of the 613, what do I prioritize? So Jesus goes to the 10. He goes right to the 10 commandments, but he does something really, really interesting. You'll notice that in all three accounts, he doesn't include the first three commandments, which are, of course, the love God commandments. From four down, it's into love your fellow man kind of stuff. The Sabbath thing could go either way there. 
So you'll have no other gods before me. You'll make no graven images. You won't take my name in vain. He hasn't mentioned those. He goes right to the behavior-based, interactive, interrelative commandments. Which ones? And Jesus said, don't commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, there's the summary statement. That's not even in the 10. That's the one that Jesus said there are two great commandments. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this, you find the whole of the law and the prophets, Jesus said. So he summarized with love your neighbor as yourself. All those others are kind of wrapped up in that. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. We're going to see in some of the other renderings of this that he says, I've done this from my youth up. I was trained up in this. I'm a good Jew. I've kept all these rules. So what am I still lacking? If I want eternal life and I have kept all the rules and I've kept the law, what do I lack? And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. Because here the man stands saying, as far as keeping the law, I got it. If law keeping, if following the Ten Commandments could get you eternal life, the answer to what else do I lack is nothing. You're good to go. But Jesus does what he always does. He prioritizes himself. And he's going to say, well, then take that one thing that is most precious to you. Take that one thing that defines you, that one thing you're all about. Give it away. Come follow me. Prioritize me. It's all about me. So he says, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions. Give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. He hit the guy right where he knew it would hurt the most, the one thing he knew he couldn't do. Just like with the Pharisees. I want to do, I want to do. Okay, I'm going to give you the one thing I know you can't do. Believe in me. I've done all this. I've done all this. Okay, I'm going to give you the one thing you can't do. Give away everything you have. And then come follow me. Now, you know that this guy, being wealthy... Had to have been dressed like, probably had servants around him, was carrying like a wealthy man. And then he's looking at Jesus' disciples. And Jesus has described his own life by saying things like, foxes have dens and birds have nests. And son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You look at this dusty, scruffy group of fishermen and tax collectors. And Jesus says, step down from your high, exalted, rich position. Come be like these guys. Then you'll have eternal life. Well, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it because people in this lifetime who have power and have money and have authority, one thing they do not want is to lose that. Especially if losing that means die. Have you seen rich people hang on to life, cling to life, don't let go of life? 
Christians step from life to life. They welcome the transition that death represents. Death is not dying for the Christian. Death is just stepping from life into life. But to a worldling, especially a wealthy worldling, where you have power and you have authority over people, the idea of standing in front of a God who has all the power so that you have no power and you're stripped of your wealth and of your fame and of your influence and you stand in front of the one who has all the authority, all the power, can you see why that would be really frightening to somebody whose whole life has been defined by their own wealth, their own power, their own self-majesty, dig me? And then you say, come to Christ, become nothing. No, I can't do that, I can't be nothing. Look at me, I'm something. For heaven's sake, in my mind, I'm everything. I don't even be nothing. And Jesus says, Take all that stuff you have that is definitional to who you are and what you're about, sell it, give the money to the poor, come follow me, prioritize me. That's what you lack. Verse 22, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. So what did he do? All we know is he went away. Now, we don't know anything more about him. As you're going to see in a moment in one of the other accounts, we're going to see that the reason that Jesus told him that, the reason that Jesus responded that way to him was that Jesus loved him. The word is agapao. It is that sacrificial love. What it means is that Jesus took pity on the boy who was so wrapped up in this world, who actually believed that his law-keeping was going to save him, who could actually look at Jesus, the very incarnate Holy One, and say, yeah, the rules, I got it. As far as keeping the law, I got it. And it says that Jesus was motivated by love for him when he said to him, sell what you have and come follow me. Now that fact that Jesus loved him has caused some people to say, well, the rich young ruler was probably saved because he was loved by Jesus. But we have no record of what happens to him after this. We don't know what became of him after this. There are some people who speculate that the rich young ruler later became the young man that we know as John Mark. And that he was the one in the garden that ran out minus his robe. But we don't know that. This is just speculation by people who want to say, but Jesus loved him and therefore... He must have been saved in some way, so they try to write him into the narrative some way. But what we know for certain is he was grieved when he heard it, for he had much property. And the other accounts are going to tell us he goes away. So Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. For all the reasons and more that I just tried to elucidate a moment ago, if your whole life is defined by power, authority, privilege, money, and then you think about dying, and when I die, I stand in front of the one who actually has all the power and all the authority and all the might. Well, that's a really frightening concept. It's a really frightening idea, and it's very, very difficult for wealthy people to truly humble themselves. 
Which is why I have said time and time again, if God loves you, he will humble you from whatever estate he finds you in. If he finds you in a rich and powerful estate, if he loves you, he'll take you down from there so that you are dependent on him. And that is not punishment. That is love. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, now he's going to really amp up how difficult it is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and they said, well, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, there's an interpretation of that part of the story, the camel through the eye of the needle. There's an interpretation out there that is very common among the Arminians, especially those Arminians who believe that it's really up to you and your will and your determination. And the way that they interpret it, because, again, you can't have Jesus saying that it's impossible for some people to be saved. You can't say that and protect autonomous free will if Jesus says there are some people who can't be saved well then you're saying that the free will of men doesn't matter it's up to Jesus so you got to get rid of that and so what they'll tell you is that over in Jerusalem there is a gate called the needle gate in the wall in Jerusalem and that a fully packed standing camel can't fit under that gate. And that that's what Jesus was saying when he said, it's as hard for a rich man to get into heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But then they will tell you, but if you take the camel and take all the pack off his back, you're nodding, Marilyn, you've heard this before, huh? Yeah. You take all the packing off him, you get him down on his knees, and you get him to kind of crawl forward, He can get through that gate. He just has to take the pack off and he has to be lowered so he can get through there. In other words, it's hard but not impossible. So what Jesus was saying is it's hard for a rich man to get in, but it's not impossible for a rich man to get in. And then they don't read the next verse where Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. Kind of clears it right up, doesn't it? Because Jesus was stating an impossibility. I think he was saying, take a camel and a needle. Get a needle, a sewing needle, and get a camel and just shove that puppy through there. We want to watch this. We want he's a puppy now. We want to just push him through there. I think Jesus was purposefully stating an impossibility so that he could say with men with men it's impossible because remember how the conversation started what do I have to do to gain eternal life well with men it's impossible I'll be right to you you had your hand up Conrad I've heard that uh, the Aramaic word for camel and the Aramaic word for rope are very close I've seen that, except that even in the most contemporary 
of translations, uh -huh. they still go with camel. It's hard to get a rope through, too. It's hard to get a rope through, too. No matter what you interpret, you have to make sure you're stating an impossibility. Because Jesus says, it's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. God can save anybody he wants to save. And by the way, it's not just money that is the difficulty because David, man after God's own heart, very wealthy man. Abraham, very wealthy man. We have plenty of examples of wealthy people who were servants of God whose names we still know to this day. So it's not ultimately about physical, tangible money. It's about who do you prioritize. Yes, sir. It's also evident that he was seeing an impossibility by the reaction of the disciples when they say, who then can be saved? Right. There would be no reason for them to say that if he was just saying it was sure. So they wouldn't react, and you're completely correct, they wouldn't react by saying, in astonishment, well, then who can be saved? So he stated an impossibility so that he could draw the differentiation and say, with men, it's impossible. Arminians don't like that, but the reality is men left to themselves cannot save themselves. It is an impossibility. So then who can be saved? Well, with God, things are possible that aren't possible with men. Even, by the way, law-keeping men, somebody who could say, I've kept all the rules. And you'll notice Jesus did not say, no, you didn't. <laughs> he said, let me tell you what you lack. So, again, law-keeping doesn't save anybody. The ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of the law is to drive people to Christ when they recognize their own inability. That's what Romans 7 is all about. When Paul says that I didn't know that I was coveting till I read, don't covet. Then I realized how guilty I was. The law is good, the law is right, the law is perfect, but the law can't save. The law can only demonstrate how wrong you are, which should drive you to Christ. So the law has a purpose and Jesus was pointing that out. You've kept the law. You've kept the Ten Commandments. Here's what you lack. Prioritize me. Then you'll have eternal life. Okay, so that being said, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. He listened to what Jesus said to the young man, which was, Sell everything, follow me. Peter, of course it's Peter, of course, says, well, we did that. Wait, what about us? We did that. We, we gave up everything. We're following you. What will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me. Now follow this. He's talking to the 12. He's talking to the apostles. You 12 that have followed me in the regeneration. When is that? 
It's the resurrection. The Jews knew a great deal about the resurrection. They had great anticipation of the resurrection. It was very common Jewish theological knowledge that there was a, a resurrection coming and that it would be a resurrection of the good and the evil and that everybody would be judged at the resurrection. Okay, so now Jesus makes reference to this idea, the regeneration, the general resurrection, the reforming of all things. At that time, when that happens, you, you 12 that have followed me, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit on 12 thrones, judging who? The 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel. What does that do for your Israelology? Mm. Is God done with Israel? No. Can you get from that statement that the church is Israel? It's the new Israel. It's the true Israel. It's the spiritual Israel he's referencing. You can't get that from this. These are Israelites. They know what Israel is. And they know that Israel is 12 tribes. And they know that the northern 10 tribes have been dispersed. But they know what we've been looking at for how many weeks now on Wednesday nights that all the prophets across the board all say that God is going to restore Israel and gather them back to their land all 12 tribes. That's what all the prophets say. Now Jesus adds a little like cherry on top and says not only are the 12 tribes going to be gathered, but they're going to have 12 princes, one for each tribe, and that's going to be you. You're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the regeneration. Now you get to Revelation 21 and you read about the new Jerusalem I don't know why people keep ignoring that name. It's New Jerusalem, for heaven's sake, <laughs> that comes down from heaven onto the earth, and it is built on the foundations, 12 foundations of the 12 apostles, and it has 12 gates, three on each of its four sides, and above the names of the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know how you read in the New Testament, New Covenant, oh, this is good, let's do this. Remember where I began, big principle stuff? Okay, here you have in the New Covenant, you have promises. Jesus makes a promise of a time coming in the regeneration, and the regeneration is obviously in the New Covenant. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and you have promises of restored Israel, all 12 tribes. So what does that do to your Israelology? It means that both in the Old Covenant and then restated in the New Covenant, you still have the regathering of the 12 tribes, the consistent story all the way through the Bible from the beginning to end. And if that's not what you believe and that's not what you teach and that's not what you say or promote or believe, you're, what's that word? Wrong. <laughs> because this is what the Bible says over and over and over and over and over and over. Did you have your hand up? Yes, sir. I, I understand that there will be 12 apostles to rule the 12 tribes. Now, um, Judas was one of them, and I wonder what, what becomes of him. He was like one of the 12, but, yep. but... Judas is referred to by Jesus himself as the son of perdition. And so, yes, you read in the book of Acts about the fact that they got together all the men who had been with Jesus from the beginning. They weren't part of the 12, but they were around. They had witnessed the whole thing, and then they drew straws, believing in God's sovereignty to find out who would take Judas's place, and it was a fellow named Matthias. Oh, I see. Okay. And so God knows what he's doing. He got it back up to 12. 
So that 12 thing's going to work out. <laughs> I was just, I was just Sure. But the important point remains, Jesus just told them that in the regeneration, there would still be 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel do not disappear in God's economy, nor are they replaced nor subsumed by the church. They remain the 12 tribes of Israel. You get to the book of Revelation, you have 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I see consistency here. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Chapter 20, verse 1, you'll notice he says, for the kingdom of God is like. Well, the parable he's about to tell is to explain the phrase, those who are first will be last and those that are last will be first. So we'll address that next week. So just hold that thought because he's about to explain what he's talking about in the first, last, last, first scenario. For the moment, let's concentrate on the fact that God knows. God knows. He loves his people And even if those people lose right now, lands, family, loved ones, in this present evil age, we're still going to suffer loss. We may still suffer lack. But the promise is those who have prioritized him, that are following him, look at what he tells you. We will receive many times as much as what we lost and, and, and inherit eternal life. Well, that's worth it. You know what? I don't need a farm if I get eternal life out of the deal. If we suffer lack, if we suffer loss in this lifetime for the sake of Christ, he is not unjust. He knows that. He understands it. And being gracious, kind, and loving, it is his intention in the regeneration to make sure that we are rewarded with a reward I can't even begin to fathom. We become joint heirs with Christ. And eternal life. And so if you lose out on things in this lifetime, in order for God to humble you, in order for you to faithfully follow Christ, it's worth it. Don't feel like he's hating on you or being hard on you or just giving you a bad time. Oftentimes what we do is we think, wow, God's really taking things away from me right now. God's really making it hard for me right now. What did I do? Because we always think that God is reacting to us. You start going back through, well, this week I, you know, oh, maybe it was that time I, oh. No, it has nothing to do with that. To begin with, God is not motivated by your actions, nor is he responding to your actions. Otherwise, he would be judging you. But he's not judging you. He's instructing you. He's teaching you. He's forming you. He's molding you. He's making you into the person that he has determined you're going to be. And sometimes he has to strip away all the peripheral junk so that you see him clearly. Sometimes you need your eyes washed from all the worldly things that you have acquired and all your bad habits and all your ugly thoughts and all the junk that so inhabits our lives. He will, in kindness, in love, strip all that away to get your attention. 
And that's not punishment. That's love. Right? Right. I did that raising my children. Do your homework. Concentrate on this. Do this. Then you can have this. Well, that's mine. Yeah, but you can't have it because I'm bigger than you. And so you can't have that. You can have that later. I'm not punishing them. In love, I'm instructing them. I'm encouraging them. I'm bringing them along. God does the same thing with us. Okay, we got to move really fast. Luke 18, 18, go there. This is a short synopsis of this story that Luke gives us, so we'll go there real quickly first. Luke 18, 18. This is where we find out that the young man that Matthew referred to is also a ruler because Luke describes him not as just a young man but as a ruler. And a certain ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, see, good rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So don't call me good without also admitting I'm God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Always. I was the perfect child. (laughs) Everything I did, I kept these rules. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he was very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is. For those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said to him, then who can be saved? And he said, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Turn to Mark for a minute. Turn to Mark 10. We'll start at verse 17. Mark ten seventeen. Everybody there, I hear pages rattling. I like the sound of pages rattling. There's something very attractive about that sound. It's people paying attention. Nothing worse than saying, turn to a passage, and there's silence in the room. <laughs> like, are you people not reading your Bibles? What are you doing? As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and began asking him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up, and it is Mark now that tells us, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. 
Let's talk about that treasure in heaven thing for just a moment because Jesus also said in Matthew that where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. And if you're constantly laying up treasures on earth, then your heart is in the earth. So then, of course, you don't want to give up all that and go stand before the judge of the universe. But if your life is a life of laying up treasure in heaven, then your heart is in heaven. And so you're anxious to go home. You're anxious to go receive your treasure. You're anxious to get away from this world and all of its problems and sufferings. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said, One thing you lack. Go sell all that you possess. Give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell and Mark's the one who tells us he went away. And he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And that is the word that I would want to leave you with this morning. Uh, How possible is it? naturally speaking, that any of us left to ourselves would naturally, soaked in our sin, enjoying our sin, enjoying our flesh and our life, what were the chances that suddenly we were going to go, you know what, I think I'll turn from my sin and suddenly become righteous and holy. I think I will follow a path of goodness and generosity and I will do good for other people for their benefit alone. I'm going to sacrifice for others. What are the chances we were going to reach that point? Or that we were just going to say, I'll bet there's probably a God in heaven. And so I'm going to pursue that. And then when I die, I'm going to have life with him, and I'm willing to give up everything in this lifetime if I can have that. What is the likelihood that any human being, any fleshly, sinful, depraved human being, is ever going to make that kind of change in their life? They're not going to. It's impossible. It's impossible for the legalist. It's impossible for the rich man. It's impossible for the sinner. It's impossible for the human being to ever be good enough to satisfy God. And there's no way you're going to obligate God based on your works. And that's what this young man was asking. What do I do? Can I do enough? Tell me what to do. And if I just do it, I'll obtain eternal life. And Jesus cut right through to the heart of the young man and said, do this one thing. Give up the thing you love most and love me more. And he couldn't do it. Why? Because it's impossible. But not impossible with God. And I like that, the, that his followers understood him so completely that they would say, well, then, who can be saved? If what you're saying is true, if what you're teaching is true, understand it. Jesus' teaching really was 
forcing them to a point of crisis that would make them ask the question, well, then who gets saved? So that his answer could be, oh, well, with you, you can't be. With God, well, then you can be. So where should your confidence be? Where should you be looking? You shouldn't be looking at yourself and your works and your, I've done all this from my youth up. That's not going to get you there. Notice it didn't get him there. You can do all the works and do all the legal stuff, dot every I, cross every T, and you're still not going to be good with God. It takes the grace of God. It takes the mercy of God. It takes the spirit of God. And if you don't have that, no amount of work on your part can help. It's impossible for you. It's possible for God. That's the point of the story. You got it? Yes, sir. Good. Any questions? Yes, sir. I have a question about uh, the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes in the New Jerusalem. Can you talk a little bit about that judgment? Are they judging for things that... Oh, the word judges that you're dealing with. Okay. Uh, Old Testament book, Judges. What did the judges do? This is before the times of the kings. Israel was ruled by judges. And so that's what he's talking about. It's being the leader of the tribe. Just like what the judges did in the Old Testament. Make sense? Good question. All right, then. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.